And now, a word from our sponsors. The Oyster Recovery Partnership is the nonprofit expert in Chesapeake Bay oyster restoration. The Oyster Recovery Partnership has planted more than 9 billion oysters on 3,000 acres of reef and recycled more than 250 bushels of shell. Everyone benefits from a healthy Chesapeake Bay. Poor water quality and declining habitats can be reversed. Oysters are the answer. Pescavore is packaged in a convenient single serving size with no refrigeration required until after opening. Pescavore is the perfect, healthy, and delicious snack for those on the go. Pescavore, tuna that travels. Hey, what's going on, good people? It's Gardner Douglas, your oyster ninja. Um, I'm here today with the host of Wildlife Wonders, a new podcast um you know focusing on wildlife wonders and uh so miss uh sariana gamble like the money um uh how you feel today i'm doing good and you i'm great i'm great it's good to see uh first of all you know people of color and nature and you know educating so that's why, of course, I had to bring you on the show and let other people find about the great things that you're doing out here. Yeah, for sure. You don't see a lot of minorities or specifically people of color talking about animals, actually enjoying animals <laughs> and sharing that joy with the world. So definitely something I'm trying to bring more awareness to. So let, let's just start there. Like, uh, where are you from and how did you on your interest in um, nature and wildlife? Okay, well, I'm from Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, used to be a smaller town, but now it's growing so much, I don't even, it's not considered small anymore. Uh, but it's a town in the upper side of South Carolina. I was born there. I have moved around so much. So I have been throughout many states, um, mostly on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, and also I used to live in the islands. So there's that. Uh, I've been in North Carolina now, probably for a good long haul, but I kind of, my love of animals was started on its own when I was little. Instantly, I lived near a big backyard, uh, or big, I said backyard, it was woods in my backyard. And so we got a lot of wildlife that just kind of came onto our property. So that was one, I went outside a lot and exploring the outside and exploring near the woods of the creek. Uh, my uncle enjoyed fishing, so going fishing with him, which I know is kind of the opposite of loving wildlife when you're catching it, but still. <laughs> and then we also had like cows up the street, which, you know, of course, I didn't go over the fence and go play with them. But it's also I was surrounded by wildlife. I was in the south. You see people sometimes with farms and animals all the time. I had dogs. I had cats, all those animals. So that was where it started. It kind of flourished from there. Um Whenever I saw any kind of animal hurt, I would go save it, take it home, like you're coming in with me, kind of try to like nurse it back to health. My family hated it because it's like you can't just bring in everything from the outdoors. We had a raccoon once that ended up having rabies, but we didn't know it had rabies when we caught it. <laughs> Until the next day, we let it was my papa said, Oh, you have to let it loose. So we let it loose. And next thing you know, it was like doing this little ticking thing and going around the log oh, no. <laughs> something's wrong with it that's crazy <laughs> um and then so yeah i told somebody it's like i think it has rabies and it was a whole ordeal but yeah we had it for a whole like day and a half before i guess it started showing so kind of lucky we didn't get bit we were feeding it weenies like through the cage we caught it through 
no problems. It didn't try to buy us in, so who knows? But that was lucky, knock on wood, that that happened and didn't end up worse. So it's like kind of small experiences like that kind of pushed me towards it. As I got older, I am going to say this when I was younger, I didn't know many Black people that really like animals as much as I do. And beyond dogs and the cats are their own dogs and cats. And so often I was told like, oh, she did that white people stuff. Um, I don't know if I could say that, but <laughs> she did that white people stuff or like, oh, this is different. This is, mm, I don't know where this is going. For the longest, my family thought I was going to be a veterinarian. Um, and I thought at some point until I saw some of my animals die and I was like, I can't handle this. This, this ain't going to work. I had burnt down. So I was like, nope. Yeah, because um, you actually did like what, like some internship or something with some vets? So funny enough, I've been a vet assistant three times now I think two times three times <laughs> um I've worked in a surgical area doing spay and neuters we also did um, some cyst removal they did dental um dental and then they do preventative care so I did that but that wasn't that was recently within the last year so that wasn't until I got a lot older um and I actually handled that a lot better than I thought I would um but regardless still a little bit of euthanasia euthanizing still kind of bothered me I've also done traveling vet tech um I've worked in a lab with mice pigs uh ferrets and I've also worked in the other lab with fishes and toads and frogs as well so I've worked with a lot of different animals in different backgrounds of all kind of different types but I've worked at a sanctuary before, <laughs> worked in a lot of different animal places, but I learned this later on in life. Um, but sorry for all the sounds, my computer, everybody else going off, but I learned this later on in life. And by the time I learned this, I was already in college. I was already an adult. I wish I would have learned it earlier in my childhood. So, hey, like, you know, even though you're young, you can go volunteer to farm or go volunteer to sanctuary, or like you can even rehab didn't find this out till later on you can rehab animals in your home and release it and you don't have to be a specific age for that you can be a teenager and do that but you just have to have a parent or someone around to approve it or help you but I really wish I would have learned these things later earlier on and when I talk to people in the field particularly people that are not minorities they've done these things or they're already a step ahead because they've experienced this or their school program had which mine did not none of my programs had like pre-vet programs or animal care programs or they had animal experiences within the school or able to go out and shadow at a young age and it's kind of crazy because I feel like that's where we are limited and maybe that's why a lot of minorities don't not having this exposure early and talk fear early kind of just kind of taints the line for later down the road so yeah I had a lot of experiences but a lot of them didn't start till after high school man that's really interesting um I'm just you know thinking while you're talking like, is this a funding issue or is this just like you said, um, a lack of exposure issue? I mean, I know this is past us, but I don't know if you've had if you've had any experience like um, talking with the educational systems or anything. I have not spoken with educational systems about this. I feel like some of it is just funding area and interest. If we don't express interest in this area, why would they put in the school? Gotcha. Uh, kind of thing and I feel like generation generationally looking at it there are reasons for fear for dogs and cats going back to slavery going back to the times where they use as weapons sometimes so I understand it but I feel like again in the family's not 
showing enough interest like hey let's take these animals to a farm or teaching like this wildlife is okay to hold and okay to look at that's part of it also people don't think when you have animals you have to have some type of money um so that's why you don't see a lot of lower class with animals or if you do see lower class with animals they might have dogs and cats but they're not well taken care of sometimes they're not taken to the vet regularly they stay outside or they use as guard animals the same thing when i was in costa rica a lot of people are poor in that the area I was in, they a lot of them had dogs and cats, but unfortunately they were not well taken care of at all, but they use it for protection. So I think that's where the issue comes to is like, it takes money to do these things. It does take money to go to the zoo. Although if anybody listening has um, government assistance, I think food stamps, a lot of the zoos, you can get a discount or free ticket if you go to zoos and aquariums and stuff like that, but just side note. Um, but it takes money to do these things. So I think that's also why lower, sometimes middle class is cut off from these experiences because you need money. And I think that's also why bad experience come with some people with animals because when you have animals that's not well taken care of or they're not, they're not trained or indoor, people have experience where they've been attacked or barked at or the animal has expressed some bad behavior that scared them because these are not your everyday well taken these are guard dogs or these are fight dogs which is not approved but fight dogs whatever the case may be um or these animals they caught from outside and they're not legit pets but yeah i feel like it's just a mix of all those factors uh, yeah yeah so what was the transition for you since you didn't have these things you know growing up in school rather these uh programs so what was the transition for you that's like you know what this could be a career um, this is not just a white thing. Um, this is actually an option for me because I love it. Yeah, uh, I feel as if my family is very nurturing. Um, I had a little bit of different experience than other people. I did move around a lot. My mom, my grandparents, everybody was very supportive of what I, if whatever I wanted to do kind of thing. It wasn't necessarily, because I was also into art. I was never pushed into saying, hey, you have to be um, an engineer, or you have to do this, or you have to do that. I was never pushing that. I was kind of fostered whatever you like is what you want to need to do. Now, in the beginning, my mom did say, hey, that's not going to pay. <laughs> she did mention that a couple of times, a few times. If you're going to vet school, maybe, but hey, if you're just trying to play with animals in a zoo or whatever, that ain't going to pay. If you're doing research, maybe. Um, but over time, her views and stuff changed. I think that helped. Um, I feel like also everybody goes to the periods of like, what am I going to do? What is this going to happen? And da, 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 da. Uh, for me, when I first went into college, I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, my degree was exploratory because <laughs> I was like, I don't know. I'm going to try different things out. Uh, again, I didn't have these experiences and these exposures before college. So I had never worked professionally in an animal space. I've always picked up animals and did other stuff or had pets, but I didn't know what it was like. Um, eventually I was, went into psychology and then I was like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just do psychology after the speech disorder thing kind of failed. So I was like, I like psychology, that's where we're going. And then that's why I stuck with for a little bit. And I ended up graduating that, but to go back at one point, I say, how can I combine my love for people, but also my love for animals? Cause I'm also like, I'm motivated by chemistry. So I was like, vet school's not gonna work for me. <laughs> Uh, so I decided to do primatology, which a lot of people do not know about. It is a thing. Uh, there are people that specifically research primates. Uh, that's what primatology is. You study primates. So I then it became 
whether I wanted to study them in their natural habitat or I wanted to study them in captivity or research. And all those other questions start flying about. Um, animal behavior popped up. If people don't want to go to vet school, there's animal behavior, there's zoology, you could do zoology, animal science, all those are options beyond just being a veterinarian. Um, so that's kind of what led into the different thoughts and the different fields. In the end, I didn't end up going the route for my doctorate to primatology, but I'm still using animals because right now I'm in a counseling program to eventually do animal assisted therapy um, with hopefully potentially children, but we haven't worked that out yet. <laughs> so I'm still using my passion and using that in another way, but there are ways to, and to incorporate what you like into what you can do as a career. You just have to figure it out. It might be different. It might be what people don't know about, but hey, that's what makes it unique. Okay, that's interesting. So um, how did you come to the idea of like, all right, well, I have this love of nature. I have, you know, I'm going to school, I'm doing these different things. I got this um, psychology, you know, degree, right? And now I want to start a podcast. Like, how does all that add up together? The podcast, they actually came kind of randomly to me. Um, I think part of it was like, oh, I see everybody else doing a podcast because, you know, it's the big thing. Everybody has a podcast now. So that was, I'm going to be honest, that was part of it. But also, like, I saw a field that was not covered. When I started to look up stuff, people talk about animals, but most of the time, they're, most of the time, they're white people to be honest. I don't even see a lot of Asians and Spanish talking about animals. It's mostly white people. And also like the more people I spoke to about animal assisted therapy, they didn't know about it. The more people I talked to about um, primatology specifically, going into that field before I went to Costa Rica was like a, I was like, I'm going to be the first black primatologist. Cause there was, from what I can see, there was no black, like at all. I don't know if that's changed, but there was none at all that I could see in the field that did this. Even when I did my internship at the zoo, I didn't see anybody at all that did specifically animal behavior, primatology that was black. Doesn't mean they're not out there, but I couldn't find them at the time. So I, it was this niche of like, I see, I see there's a need to be filled. I talk to more people. All these people are afraid of animals or don't know about animals, or I talk about animals all the time. So either friends would be like, oh, I didn't know that. That was cool, this, that, and the third. So I was like, huh, I want to start a podcast. No one really talks about animals as black. Um, and there's a lot of black people that don't know about animals or they won't listen. Not to say that they're not white people don't know what they're talking about. And there's not, there's plenty of professional in the field, but sometimes minorities are more likely to listen or tune in to someone that looks and can relate to them. Cause they're like, wait, she doing it or she's saying something about it. Maybe it's some of us out there. Maybe it's possible that like, I'm not alone in my interests and stuff like that. So I also saw, I just saw different needs that need to be filled. And that's kind of, okay, this could work. This might be something that people are interested in. And it's slowly catching on. It's taking a minute, but the ball is slowly rolling and starting to meet a lot of other people that are interested in animals, but also wanting to get more in the animal field and just don't know. It's cool. You started a podcast. Everybody's doing it. Yeah. <laughs> but let's, 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 let's talk about the struggles. First of all, well, let's, let's, I want to talk about that later. What kind of research did you do as far as like starting a podcast? Because I know when I started mine, I kind of, like I told you, I had like a mentor who had like multiple podcasts. He's been doing it since like the beginning of time. So my journey was a little different and a little easier, I think. Um, of course, I still had to learn how to do the things. He wasn't doing it for my for for me, but like 
um what were you worried about when you, and and granted the podcast is still new but what were you worried like in the beginning like as far as like starting a podcast journey uh for me it was so much stuff um before I started um of course finding finding a niche exactly what I want to talk about with animals but I reached out to someone that is doing he's a videographer but also does podcasts and so I reached out to him, asking him questions. I watched video after video of starting a podcast. Because every it's easy to start one. It's actually like it's easy to put it up and say, hey, I'm going to do one. The recording, the editing, all of that was very difficult. It's still very difficult because before this, I did content and stuff on social media, but nothing with editing audio and nothing with like taking out background noise. And if you listen to my podcast, we're slowly getting there, but it's still some some work. Uh <laughs> nothing with adding intros and music and I'm like mine is still compared to a lot of people still very basic as you see I only have one video up because that in itself was a stress to upload a video to YouTube to add a beginning of it I'm like all this is a lot and I I kudos to everybody that are content creators full-time um I do have a job I also am in school and all these other things and all these side hobbies so it is very time time it takes a lot of your time <laughs> it takes a lot and no one talks about that um, mm -hmm. just kind of I'm trying to get on a schedule of regularly posting and editing and stuff and trying to schedule out like hey I'm recording on Monday or Tuesday and I'm going to edit this day and then have it published or scheduled and in my head it sounds good I'm like oh I'm gonna get four weeks done this week it doesn't happen it hasn't right, happened right, right. <laughs> uh, so just like learning that and it takes twice as much time for me to edit versus someone else that has maybe done this already for a year or done this for six months or had previous experience editing so when they started a podcast it was easy selling yeah just to learn how to go through and clip stuff and take out the noise here it's it's a lot it's a lot I'm not going to lie I considered a couple of times early on starting that was one of my things in the beginning am I going to pay somebody to do that because I really consider that part mm -hmm. but then when when I thought about it I was like I don't have enough traction or enough views coming in for me to come out my pocket to immediately do that in the beginning. Now, later on, I'm not opposed to it. But right now, it's like, it's just better, especially if it's smaller and it's getting started for me to try to do that on my own and figure it out. And just so I know, but it's still a learning curve. It's a huge learning curve. YouTube, uh, Google has been my friend. How do you come up with your content that you're going to go over in that episode? So when it comes to most of the episode, I've been going in order, going through the animal classes, so mammals, invertebrates, um, reptiles, amphibians, going through it. And I did that for two cycles for, I guess, the first season. I haven't decided if I'm going to keep seasons or just name each episode. But and within each episode, I usually go over where they're from, their behavior, mating style, um, diet, conservation status and the fun facts at the end that's the kind of format I've been following for the intro episode and the episode that you're probably talking about about the primates when I do the intro episode it's kind of just going over an overview so the first intro episode to the podcast was why am I creating this but also it's like here are the animal classes this is the difference between a mammal and the amphibians because you have to break it down to the basics Originally, I made this, uh, and still now, I made the podcast for everyone. So I also try to speak in a way that's understandable for kids, but also understandable for people that do not have a science background or do not have an animal background. If I automatically go into all the parts of the brain and the amount of incisors and dental they have, people are going to tune out. They're going to tune out. They're like, I don't know what's going on. 
So I try to simplify it so anybody of any age, of any mental capacity can listen to it. That's the kind of way I do it. Um, you also see me stutter like the last episode. I had a little hesitation because I'm not sure there's still, again, I'm new, there's still gray areas. I'm not sure if I could have said the word kill and some other words when I'm uploading to YouTube or if I'm uploading to the podcast, I'm not sure if that considers explicit. So I try to, if I have hesitation, I try to find other words that replace words that might seem violent, I guess, in a sense, because I do want it to be for kids as well. So that's kind of the context I do there. For the primate episode, I just really, one thing that like really touches my soul is when people don't know that they call an ape a monkey. And like, don't know the difference between an ape and a monkey, but I have to reel that back in and like, everybody wasn't taught. So that's kind of what the main goal of the episode was to go over. What's the difference between an ape and a monkey and what are primates? Because you could say, oh, we're primates. A lot of people don't know what that is. We're primates, but I have to explain like, it's because we have nails. It's because we have thumbs, like that kind of thing and go through that because you don't want to go into details of an animal and say, this is an amphibian like other amphibians. And they'd be like, what the heck is an amphibian? Or this is a primate, like other primates, like what does a primate have that's different? So I kind of mm. try to start out with the general information so we know a little background and then go into each animal specifically. So would you, I think you, so is are primates your favorite? Primates, are, primates are definitely my favorite. I have a, a really soft spot in my heart for them. I also am obsessed with turtles. I love turtles. Um, yeah, but primates hold the, Turtles and goats. Primates hold my special heart, though. <laughs> so primates, turtles, and goats. Like, what what draws you to these animals? These, you know, what draws you? For primates specifically, primates are so much like us. That's one big reason. If you ever watch primates, they the way they think is complex. They use tools. It's just like on another level. It's very interesting. They form bonds like us. They can. Uh, practice pro-social behavior just like us of like grooming or being affectionate or realizing aggression or jealousy it's kind of like the same concepts that we have is why I'm very interested in them they're just very interesting to watch um also they're used a lot in research unfortunately but they are used a lot in research for different studies and how it applies how it can be applied to humans so that as far as primates turtles are just cute <laughs> they're just really cute and unique and I I just like turtles they're just adorable and as far as goats, I've I've always been obsessed with goats. I disclosure, I want a pet goat in the future. I'm still working on that <laughs> and trying to convince uh, who I'm staying with that hey, we can have a pet goat in the future. But I just love goats. I always had I rented a goat during COVID to have at the house, walked around the neighborhood, fed him and everything because that hold was up, thing. hold up, that's a thing. What? Well, I like I was curious, and it was you... COVID, and you know we all did dumb weird stuff during COVID. I didn't want a goat though. (laughs) I found a farm near me and like she, you could do animal rentals. And most of the time it was guinea pigs, hamsters, like rabbits, stuff like that. And I think she did that. So people will rent the pet and see how their kids did with it or see how they did with it before they went in and bought a pet, which is smart. Very, very smart. More places should do that because a lot of pets get returned or just donated or given away. But that was her purpose. But she also let you rent a goat. So I took a goat. Usually the goat rentals were for like birthday parties and weddings because people use animals for that, petting zoos or whatever the case may be, field trips, things like that. But I was like, I'm just renting to take it to the house. And she was like, okay, cool. These are the rules. Da, 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 da. It was a baby goat. If you see baby goats, baby goats are huge, um, <laughs> even though they're babies. 
So it was, she did have this one guideline. I think I had rented it for like six, eight hours, something like that. But her guideline was that I, when it started to cry too much or whatever, I needed to bring it back because then it was probably time when it started to cry and scream too much, then it was time for it to probably feed. And she didn't, she wasn't the type of lady that gave you bottles or anything. You had to bring it back so it can come nurse with the mother. Uh, so we did have, I think we had some, she gave us like a bag of snacks or whatever for in between, but he had fed that morning. We had a little doll crate, put him in the car, brought him to the house, let him out. I had a little uh, leash for him, took him around the neighborhood. Um, my mom was not happy because <laughs> at the time I was staying in my mom's house, she was not happy. She's like, that goat is not coming to the house. So he wasn't allowed in the house. So I had to stay outside funny. the entire time I had him in the garage or in the backyard. Um, my siblings were all very interested. It was also to create an interactive experience for my siblings. Mm, um, I have okay. a bunch of younger siblings. So they fed him, pet the goat. We talked about the goat and what is the like different details and facts about the goats. And they were really engaged. They got to hold it. They were excited. Like I said, my mom wasn't happy, but hey, we were all interactive and she loved that they were learning something from it. And then, yeah, they asked to keep the goat, but it had to go back. <laughs> That's actually um, pretty cool when you put it like that. Well, first of all, I can understand, you know, like um, for like weddings or, mm-hmm. you know, a rapper's photo shoot or video yeah. or something. Uh, but no, um, that's that's kind of cool. Like you um, introduced that goat to your, you know, siblings. So they have that exposure. Um, so just more exposure. And, you know, the more exposure we have is is even better, you know. Um, yeah, definitely. I exposed them to a lot um, of animal stuff growing up just because that was my love. But also I have three brothers and a sister under me. Two of my brothers love animals just as much as I do. And I think part of that, I took them to, um, during COVID, outside of COVID, also when they were my, the youngest one was a baby. At that time, I came back from college and I took care of him full time, almost when my mom was working. And so we went to the park, we played with dogs, we went to zoos or um, the aquariums, we went to petting zoos. And I try to teach them early on this not to have a fear of animals. Um, the same thing, like there was experience where some uh, duck mom got hit. And all the ducks were running. We went out there. We caught all the ducks or caught what we could to take them to a sanctuary. So they definitely have that exposure, ride through zoos. So I would say they're not necessarily afraid of animals. And they've definitely been more exposed than other minority kids probably have. So before we close up, how can we expose more minorities? Um, And we've talked about a few already um to you know nature and wildlife and those things so there are things there's so many ways there's one there's a thing called a forestry school um there might be one in your area they're actually in a lot of areas are becoming more popular and it's basically a program for school you can use it for homeschool kids but you can also just use it in general for if parents want to get their kids more involved in the outdoors. So basically sign up, they take the kids outdoors or to woods and they explore. They explore the forest, <laughs> they explore their surroundings, pick up sticks, dig stuff. If they see an animal, talk about it. So that's definitely one way that um, you can get your kids out there. There's forestry schools. You can have your kid volunteer at local sanctuaries. The one where I went to the goat, um, it's called Winter Pass Farms, is near Wake Forest in North Carolina. You can volunteer there. Kids can come there and help brush the animals or feed the animals or cut up fruit or whatever the case may be, social interaction with some of the animals. So there's things like that that's free for kids to volunteer. It's free for adults to volunteer. Uh, Like I said, if you are 
lower income, if you're on government assistance, a lot of the zoos and aquariums have programs where you can go and either go for free or go for really, really cheap, go to the zoo or aquarium. I've known a lot of people that did that and definitely take take um, control of that because zoos have gotten expensive. A lot of them have. So there's programs like that. If you have the funds, <laughs> hey, you can do like I do and go do research in Costa Rica or there's different programs that you can do like, um, I guess it's called travel volunteering. There's some pros and cons of that, which I would have to go over at another point. So I don't always promote that. But there's travel volunteer where you can volunteer sanctuaries or animals or do stuff for the wildlife or all kind of stuff out there. Of course, they cost a little bit more, but there are scholarships and there are fundings that you could do for that. So the biggest thing is just like, if you're able to get in pets, getting your kids around pets, if you are scared of animals, try not to show that to your kids because kids learn behavior. They watch you and they learn behavior. So if you're afraid of dogs and a dog come around, try not to scream and shout and run around. Say, I'd rather stay back, but promote your kids to explore that area and see if maybe they're interested in it and maybe they're not as scared as you would be. But if you show that early on before a child even experiences that animal, that's why you see a lot of people that are afraid of animals or certain animals and they've never been around them. Um, it's because they've seen other people express if they seen the worst in them. So there's all kind of different things like that. It's just exposure, exposure, exposure. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, something I, I did want to bring up earlier, you you brought up uh, Costa Rica a few times. So what was the trip um, to Costa Rica? What was that about? So I was at the end of my, um, I was at the end of my bachelor's. Yeah, the last year, my bachelor's degree. And so that summer, I because I was determined that I was going to be a primatologist. I'm going to go in my doctorate program. I was like, right after I graduate, I'm going right into PhD. And I talk, thought to myself, and I was like, maybe I should do something to explore this, to make sure this is what I want before I spend another five to seven years of my life <laughs> in something. Um, so I did a program through, wow, escape my name, El Suerte. Um, it was the Madeiras, Madeiras Rainforest School or whatever the case may be. You can look it up. Anybody that's listening can look it up. And they have all kinds of programs for pre-vet. If you just want to study the biology, uh, plant biology, they have um, primate program, they have a bat, all kinds of stuff. You can look at it. And so I got, I was awarded the Gilman Scholarship. I applied for that. That wasn't through them. That's through a national thing you can apply for. So I got the funding there. I found the program, applied, I got in. I got a, another funding, I think through them as well. And so I was like, I'm going to Costa Rica. It was to study mantled howler monkeys. That's why I ended up studying for the three, four weeks I was there. And you live on site, you stay in the rainforest, you go out every day, do your research, collect data, you present your paper then and your findings, they do promote that you publish it um, or go to a conference and um, present it there by the end of doing that. But that's basically what I went to Costa Rica for. And it was there after that trip back, I decided I was like, yeah, it, it sounds bad, but I was like, I see why there's not a lot of black people in this field. <laughs> what were some of the negatives about it? So I guess this is like, one, if you have a medical condition, for me, I do have a medical condition. You have to put in perspective when you do this full time in the field, there, if you're on, sorry, if you're on medications, you don't once you run out, you don't have access to these medications. There's not a near, the nearest doctor is like an hour or something away if something happens. Um, so you have to deal with that, especially if something that it physically affects you, you're walking for miles and miles. And 
I mean, my mom told me this before I go, but I'm hard-headed and I had to see it for myself. So you're walking for miles and miles and miles through rough terrain. Um, you're getting rained on a lot of times. It's socially kind of draining if you're a social person because they let you know like in the actual field, you might only be researching one or two other people. You might be doing research for your own because you're usually out doing this research for months. So you have to be okay with maybe being by yourself or not being in contact with your family. That wasn't that huge to me, but um, we didn't have Wi-Fi for like the first three weeks because something happened to it. I mean, you're in the rainforest. Something happened to it. So definitely doing all research old school style through looking through books, citing through books, um, of course, doing your own spell check and all that. And then, I mean, it's you're in a third world country. So I had been in the third world country prior to that. So it wasn't like a huge shock. But at the same time, a lot of people take things for granted. You wash your clothes by hands. You hang it on the clothesline. Because it's so humid, nothing ever dries. Um, and so you have that too. You're always like, I was always in wet clothes, but you're taking cold showers. You have the threats of the wildlife, of course. And all that to take into consideration. We ate a lot of the same similar stuff for the three or four weeks, not a whole lot of variety. Uh, for me, I don't eat. At the time I wasn't, I don't think I was eating meat either. I was a pescatarian still at the time. So taking that into consideration, I ate a lot of rice and beans and fruit. Um, so just not having your random, your, your luxuries um, all the time, of course, is always going to be something to center. And it's just a different series of factors, but yeah, I decided I was like, yeah, I don't know. Also, on a side note, I was like, this was also I had to think in my head because I was trying to prove myself wrong. I was like, well, I didn't want to work with a rainforest animals anywhere because New World primates are in South America. I was like, I don't want to be a South America anyway. I wanted to go to Africa. It'll be hotter. The conditions will be different. Looking back on it, I don't know if it'll be that much different. It would be different, but I was like, it still might be worse conditions or around the same, just in a different environment. But I, I was determined to try to talk myself. I was like, I don't care what anybody says. Like this just, it just was this environment. It wasn't me. It wasn't like, it's something I'm not capable of doing. But sometimes you have to realize like something's not for you. But it was a great experience. There's so many positive things I would take out of it. So I don't want to say that to say, oh, all this sounds negative. But you just have to be conscious of this when going there. Also for people with natural hair, a lot of, I was the only minority there at all. Like there was one other Hispanic girl, but she wasn't really with our program. Everybody else was white female set for one. And so what is not to be understood is, you know, you can just wash your hair every day and go there. You, I couldn't take all my products there cause you know, <laughs> I only have so much luggage, but also because my hair never fully dried and you don't have access to always plug in a dryer, straight iron and all this stuff. At the time I had put my hair in some full locks before then, but you do not want to do something for a key to anybody about to do a trip like that. You do not want to do a faux locks in a place where your hair doesn't dry. Because if you know anything about locks or faux locks and they don't dry, they can get moldy or they can get smelly because your locks need to dry. Um, so you don't always want to walk around with wet locks. So that was a big problem too. Um, like I said, very surface level and very specific to me. But yeah, if you worry about straight hair or humidity, that's out the door. It's always humid. <laughs> It's always humid. So there's always stuff to consider. You don't have a whole sink to set up your hair, wash day routine and all that stuff. I also learned that I was severely allergic to mosquitoes. I felt like I was getting 30 mosquito bites a day and my arms and legs would swell or all the mosquito bites would swell really bad. They have a different type of mosquito there. They don't care how many layers of clothes you got on. You always get bit by something. <laughs>
you know, I watch a lot of uh, Naked and Afraid, and I'm like, I could never. Like, <laughs> even with clothes, like, like the way they, um, no, uh-uh. When they're in the jungles yeah. and the rainforest, I'm like, nah, me and my wife, we sit back and we're like, no, we're good. Good. with clothes is a struggle <laughs> i couldn't imagine doing without clothes like right um, um any advice for um minorities trying to get in this uh in this lane now i would say when i first started this this was 20 2015 is when i graduated high school so 2015 going into 2016 Things have definitely changed over the years. And now in 2023, there are so, and when I got in the field, I learned this more along the way. There's so many black vets out there now, still minority, don't get me wrong, they're still minority, but there's more than it was when I first started. There are a lot of other black professionals. You can go on Facebook or Instagram group, look at black, like look up hashtag black vets, black animal lovers, or there's groups out there on Instagram that's trying to get other minorities involved, not Instagram, on Facebook, that's trying to get other minorities involved. So you can look for that. There are now a few more school programs that are involving animal things into it. But if you think you're into, if you think might you might be into that route, route, you can always find courses at your school like animal science or find like biology programs. Because regardless, if you're going into vet, you're going to need biology and chemistry. Like take those courses and get interested. Find places to volunteer. That's the biggest thing. People hate volunteering because it's, it's free labor, but if that's what you're interested in, find places to volunteer. You don't have to have a college education to work at a sanctuary. I learned that early on too. And if it wasn't for, for me, I have to pay my bills. And I was like, this don't pay enough for me to see, want to work at this full-time because it is a full-time commitment. But you can go to sanctuaries. You can shadow people and maybe work your way up to eventually you're working at a sanctuary from a volunteer to, uh, to a person. There's a place out West that I thought about for primates, you can, um, I don't remember right now, but you can volunteer out there and they take their volunteer interns and eventually turn them into employees. So if you know this is something you wanna do, certain things, of course, research you need a degree for and like vet and stuff. But if you just wanna work with animals, a lot of people in these fields don't have degrees anymore just to work as a sanctuary or like a work at the zoo or rehab center you can learn this on your own and just work your way up that way or just get some experience and maybe work open your own sanctuary I did meet a kid that had their own technically their parents helped them run it but it was under their name and they started doing stuff around so it became their own sanctuary another thing I found if you don't want to do a whole college education or you just need a class or something what you could do, and I've done this when I thought I was going to be a rehabber, I took a local class at a um, community college. I think it was like six weeks. I did it two days a week or something like that. It was night classes, and they teach you everything about rehab. I went to go do a day with owls and hawks and falcons. Um, they teach you what you need to rehab, and then at the end, you pretty much can be a rehabber. You can get the stuff that you need, keep it in your car. If you find in that specific situation, they did birds of prey and raptors. So if you find like a prime, not a primate, if you find a birds of prey that's injured and you have the stuff to safely pick it up, you can transport it to the nearest center. So you can do stuff like that. Um, that is volunteer. It is not paid. So a lot of older people do a lot of people that do it as a side job or a hobby, but you would not get paid for that. <laughs> There are rehabbers that get paid, but a lot of the rehabilitation, if you're doing your house full-time feeding, especially during the spring, is a big thing during the spring for people to get into because so many animals are born during the spring. You'll get so many babies for squirrels 
and possums and stuff like that, you can do that at your home as long as it's like certain requirements like having a backyard and stuff like that. But you can do that at your home and anybody can do that. Like I said, or your parent can do it, parent could do it and then you be under them and helping them. But those do not pay. Just be aware of that. They don't pay. So that's purely out of the love and joy of your heart. All right. I got two more questions. Right. First, what categorizes something as a bird of prey? So they are large birds that eat other small animals or other birds. Like when I say birds of prey, hawks, eagles, owls, uh, falcons. Am I missing anybody? Eagles are protected though, but a lot of the eagles are protected, like the bald eagle and everything. So not everybody can pick those up, but um, yeah, all those are birds of prey. So when you think of your big scary birds that swoop down and get the other animals, that's usually birds of prey. Roger that. And where can we find you? Where can we find your podcast? So you can find me on YouTube, Buzzsprout, Spotify, iHeart, um, iHeart Media, any of the major um, platforms you can find at Wildlife Wonders with an S. It's not, it's with an S, plural. Uh, podcast, all one word. That is the YouTube. That is the Instagram. I'm working on a Facebook page, but right now we're doing management. Um, and that's pretty much everywhere you can find me. If you want to find me personally outside of this or outside of that space, Sari underscore tag is my Instagram name. You can find all my other stuff there as far as the other stuff I do, like food reviews, my modeling content stuff. But yeah, everything else is Wildlife Wonders podcast, one word, or on YouTube, of course, separated, but it's still Wildlife Wonders podcast. Cool. Well, thank you so much um, for joining the the lineup of Oyster Ninja podcast. Thank um, you. I know you were a little worried at first about coming on here. Like, what? Are, I'm not talking about oysters, really. You're not the only one, though. Like, a, a lot of people, um, it's like, well, I don't really know anything about oysters. Well, I know, I probably know that. Okay. Yeah. I just want to <laughs> talk to you about what you know about. And, uh, but no, I appreciate you for, um, um being a person of color in the industry and you know educating people and I mean just the things you were talking about today on this show um mm -hmm. about even you know having um being on government assistance is not a excuse not to be you know um educated like there yeah. there, there are ways out there where if you have the will there is a way Yep. So um, thank you for putting that out there. And uh, I think this is going to be a good one. I, I really do. So I thank think you. So too. <laughs> thank you.